Welcome to New World of Work, a podcast exploring the new frontier of the modern workforce. I'm Rhys Black, Head of Workplace Design at Oyster, a global employment platform making it easier than ever to build a brilliant team on an international scale. On New World of Work, we'll hear from some of the world's best and brightest people and culture experts on cutting edge topics that people operations professionals need to hear today, all through a global lens. Join us as we navigate this new world of work together and learn more about each other along the way. Neurodivergence is a term that some of us have heard, but that many of us still know very little about. What does it mean to be neurodivergent? And how can PeopleOps leaders create an inclusive and welcoming workplace for neurodivergent employees? To help answer those questions is this episode's guest, Connor Reinhardt. Connor is the COO of Mentra, a neurodiversity employment network that connects neurodivergent people with employers who value their unique skills. Mentra also works to educate employers and PeopleOps leaders about the many benefits of hiring neurodivergent individuals and advocates for quote-unquote neurodiversifying the workplace. Connor and I had an enlightening and educational chat about how Mentra achieves that mission, why hiring neurodiverse employees is about much more than checking a box, and why creating an accommodating workplace is good for everyone. My name's Connor, and I'm the COO and co-founder here at Mentra, where we are building a neurodiversity employment network akin to the next LinkedIn for one in seven people worldwide who have some form of neurodivergence, autism, ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning differences. I myself am on the autism spectrum diagnosed as an adult. And uh, prior to this, I've had uh, experiences at Georgia Tech, initially graduated as an industrial engineer, worked at Tesla for a while, then Amazon short stint in consulting. And um, for the last two years prior to, to going full-time at Mentra, I was actually working at Bank of America on their digital accessibility team for about two years. For the last year and a half, we've been full-time building out Mentra, and that's really my focus at this point. Fantastic. Um, and you, you, you touched a little bit on what Mentra is. Uh, could you maybe share a bit more detail? Can you give maybe a bit of detail around what is, what's the mission behind starting Mentra in the first place? Yeah, for sure. So... Uh, for me, I didn't really know much about neurodiversity, you know, back in school about four years ago. It's rather a new term. Today, it's gotten a lot more exposure. But when we first started, and Mentra initially started uh, with the story of Jilika Kumar, our other founder, and her brother. Her brother, Vikram, is a non-speaking autistic individual with relatively high support needs. And for the majority of his life, he, he couldn't communicate at all. Their family assumed that he had roughly a three-year-old intelligence, and it wasn't until the age of 27 with a new therapy and the introduction of accessible technology that he was able to learn how to type using an iPad. And he was able to type beautiful poetry about being locked in a body, and it turns out that he knew multiple languages this whole time. So she shared that story in a TED Talk, and I was the organizer of that talk, and it really just kind of opened my eyes to, you know, this is an extreme example, of course, of a case where someone has all of this potential and it was totally misunderstood. But there's actually one in seven people worldwide that are neurodivergent in some fashion. So many different forms of neurodivergence, ADHD, dyslexia, autism, and, and even autism is a spectrum of support needs. Yet one thing is common, 
is that 80% of the population is underemployed, despite our immense capabilities. So we, as an industrial engineer, are trained to solve large-scale societal inefficiencies. This was about the biggest one I could find, and uh, we made it our, our mission to, to work on solving the, the inefficiency in the employment market. What's the genesis story from there? Was Jilika already working on Mentra? Was it just kind of a, an idea at that point in time? How did Mentra come to be? And, and how did you end up becoming part of the, the company with her? I remember, you know, forever. We, it was her in a dorm room with uh, Wix Domain, at Accessibility at the time. We've since changed the name. And she had, you know, created this, this website to help. Initially, it was helping, you know, anyone with, with disabilities uh, finding, you know, accessible technology that they needed and kind of, that kind of evolved. But this was a college project and the whole the whole mission was to help this community. And after her TED talk, there was uh, about six of us volunteering on campus and we did a lot of uh, work at, you know, the campus innovation challenges. And Jilika had a, a knack for cold emailing just about everyone she could think about. A lot of the professors around Georgia Tech knew about the project and, you know, the passionate folks volunteering on the project. So I, I was just uh, really thrilled to join that on the side after after TEDx kind of came to an end. And then from there, you know, we ended up working on that, really understanding through the Atlanta area autism community. You know, the, the main pain point in the entire community was around employment, finding employment and really the, the everything else that comes out of employment, the income, the purpose, being able to have the structure and, and the community. You know, this was a, a really clear thing for me to see that everyone that I interacted with who was neurodivergent in the community had all of the capability, but there was a sort of fundamental flaw with the way that we find jobs today for a number of different reasons we can get into uh, that, were, that was holding the community back. Um, I want to ask a, a fairly big question, a fairly broad question. I would imagine that Mentra is, is a big part of this, but um, if you were to try to distill down to an elevator pitch, what what would you say is your overarching mission in uh, your career? I think, so the mission of Mentra is to to empower every company to fully embrace neuroinclusion. We want to see a world where everyone, whether neurodivergent or not, is able to bring their full selves to work in an environment where they can be themselves and, and fully actually actualize their potential. When you think about the concept of universal design, uh, this is the idea that by building a, a ramp on a sidewalk, you're able to not only help the person in a wheelchair, you're also able to help folks with strollers and bicycles. It's good for everyone. So by solving for the most complex use case, the neurodivergent population, we can build a better uh, a better job finding process for everyone that will ultimately help our society. Maybe to, to ask a, a quite a basic question as well for, for, for those that are listening, uh, they might not be so familiar. Can you please explain what the term neurodiverse actually means? Yeah, for sure. So neurodiverse and neurodivergent are very similar terms, often confused for each other, but they're actually different. And this is something I learned along the journey. Neurodivergent individual is someone with some sort of learning difference. So autism, ADHD, dyslexia, these are kind of the big ones. We also have, you know, acquired forms of neurodivergence, which is, uh, you know, could think about traumatic brain injuries, PTSD. A lot of veterans, you know, could be considered neurodivergent in that sense. Um, and there's so many different learning differences. If you've been in a gifted program, if you've, you know, had any uh, 
experiences in your life is there's a chance that you might be neurodivergent, but you may not have a formal diagnosis because a large portion of the community does not, including myself, until I was an adult. That's neurodivergent. Neurodiverse is when you look at a group. When a group of individuals comprises neurotypicals alongside neurodivergent individuals, we consider that a neurodiverse group. So when we're looking at a neurodiverse world, we're looking at a world where the 15 to 20% of the population that's neurodivergent is, is living and working in unison alongside uh, the rest of the population. Whereas today, uh, in our current world, we're not there yet. We, we still have a large neurodivergent population that's left out. That's to answer that question. And the concept of neuroinclusion is the, the answer to how do we get to a neurodiverse world. Neuroinclusion is what we were just talking about. If you can build the ramp on the sidewalk, that is a, uh, an accessible sidewalk. If you can build a company or a, a society that is neuroinclusive, that cares about you know, all of the nuanced factors that you know, really make or break an experience for this population, you can build a, a world or a company that fully sort of embraces the power of neurodiversity. I, you're teaching me things right now. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I'm someone that's particularly educated on this topic. So I'd be interested to get your thoughts on, I guess, the, the education that needs to take place uh, around this as much as, you know, what you do as a, a career network, there must be quite a large amount of education and sort of knowledge transfer to help people understand some of these terms that might seem quite complex. They might, in, in a lot of cases, actually, you, you've used terms there that if you, you read them, they might even sound like the same thing, but they have subtly different definitions between neuroinclusivity, neurodiverse, um, neurodivergent. Those terms must get very easy to, to mix up. So yeah, it'd be very, it'd be interesting to hear from an education point of view, how, how do you approach that? Totally, I'll answer that. And also, I just want to say, Reese, I am also learning as well. And we are continuing to see, since the space is so new, a lot of these terms, even the, the oldest ones coined in the last 20 years, the terminology is constantly evolving. So I think it's really important to just remember that the community is growing and, and really forming in a, in a positive way. I think that around the education piece, there's so, so much education that has to happen. Everything from the general awareness of, yes, we are living alongside you know, one in seven people, some estimates as high as one in five, who are um, you know going to think differently than the than the average person. And, and there's going to be different things we have to consider. I think that is a something that a lot of people don't think about because it isn't it isn't obvious it isn't visible so understanding the situation and then the types of different accommodations and, and considerations we we all need to make for each other to be able to fully be productive and be be successful as a, as a society that is a really large awareness campaign that you know kind of is the precursor to to a lot of the, the work that we're trying to do and thankfully this is a, a societal movement that's starting to happen where I'll introduce another term called unmasking. Part of the challenge with neuroinclusion is that there's really it's really hard to to make the case to be neuroinclusive if you don't understand how the scope of the problem. So we could talk here today in this podcast with one in seven people. Well, who are those one in seven people? Are they in my company or are they in my family? I, I don't know. The reason why is because a lot of times as a neurodivergent, even someone with a diagnosis, there are real reasons why you wouldn't want to share that information. A fear of discrimination. You know, a lot of times you may not know even how to share the information. You don't know what the other, you, you can't expect what the people around you would respond to that 
And you, many cases, folks don't have a diagnosis. They don't feel comfortable, you know, sharing that they're neurodivergent or they identify as neurodivergent. Um, so there's a lot of work on awareness side collectively, but also on an individual point of view for folks who may be neurodivergent themselves to understand that and then to feel comfortable sharing and unmasking. So I think the more we start to see on TikTok, on, you know, on social media and in conferences, I just got back last week from disability and uh, the concepts uh, sort of openly brought up and in, in leaders in, in the space and in general in the world um, starting to unmask their neurodivergence. I think the more the more we're going to see this this awareness really spreading. So coming back to this idea of diversify or sorry, neurodiversifying the workplace, um, can you please explain what type of support Mentra offers to candidates and what are some of the invisible barriers that you're helping candidates overcome? Yeah, for sure. From a candidate point of view, I'll, I'll describe the barriers first. So you think about it, if you're a neurodivergent candidate today, you could either be you know, searching for your first role, in which case if you've been unemployed for some time. It, it could be a big challenge because for many folks, difficult if you don't have the work experience already to kind of get into these positions and optimize your resume. So a lot of folks are getting screened out before they even get an interview. Uh, we've worked with individuals who've applied hundreds of times to roles only to, to, to get a few interviews. And then, of course, the big challenge once you get an interview as a neurodivergent is, do I disclose? Do I not disclose? And how do I get the accommodations and the support I need? And in a lot of cases, you know, those, those pain points can be really challenging. Here's how Mentra helps with all of that. Number one, when you're applying to Mentra, it's one application. So you're not applying to many jobs. You're applying once to, to join the ecosystem. In the application, we're considering all of the important factors. So 70% of what we collect is not collected on you know, a standard job application. We're looking at neurotype. What are someone's environmental sensitivities? What sort of accommodations do they need to be successful? What are their neuroexceptional talents? What are sort of their, their passions or, or deep interests, uh, special interest areas that really drive that, that individual um, and, and a really a big focus in their career? We try to understand at this very deep level, uh, everything from, you know, whether the, the roles that they, they're in, if there's a sensitivity to bright lights or loud sounds, these are things that are not considered on job applications, but they, they matter. And by looking at that, not only can we understand the individual to recommend roles where they can succeed, but we can also put them in front of employers that already care about neuroinclusion and, and hiring from this population. So they know that, yes, an employer on Mentra, I can unmask. I can share my neurodivergence. In fact, I should because that's how I'm going to get the support I need. And second of all, I don't have to do this in a really convoluted conversation around. It's, it's hard to be able to explain I'm neurodivergent. What, what else do I need to share? Do I need to say all these sensitivities? How am I going to bring that up? I'm already having social anxiety about the interview. So we actually help with that as well. The Mentra profile kind of speaks for itself and kind of covers all of the important information that would need to be said prior to your conversation. So the recruiters, the hiring managers you're speaking to, they already understand your neurodivergence. They're already able to accommodate you and to, to, to make sure that they're really looking at your strengths and what they can do to find the most valuable employee. Fantastic. Okay. Coming back on to, so I, I mentioned or I brought up this topic of, of education before, uh, and you also mentioned that for, at least in the beginning, you were, you were very much focused on, on the candidates experience themselves. And then all of a sudden you started to get the, uh, the demand from the other side, from, from the employer, for, whether that be DAI teams or, or recruitment teams. I'd be really interested to hear what does the education look like for that site for for the recruiters when they're actually engaging with these candidates when they're on the platform um and again yeah what, what are those resources or uh, or, or conversations what does that look like 
Yeah, so that's right. So taking a step back for a second, we look at the general challenge here is that there is uh, no translation layer. You have candidates that cannot, you know, oftentimes don't for a number of reasons, disclose their neurodivergence. And you have recruiters who don't understand neurodiversity or what to consider. And as a result, even if you had someone speaking to a recruiter, if, if you don't have those two things, that person's probably not going to make it through the process. So we aim to be the translation layer on both sides. For recruiters, this looks like a, a comprehensive training around what is neurodiversity, what do you need to consider. So we do a lot of training and awareness work uh, there, of course, for companies. Then when they're actually on the platform and you're posting a role, we take a lot of the work out from the sourcing component because, as I mentioned, we have these partnerships with um, so many organizations in the space. So that, that helps us not only bring on talent, but also make sure that we're bringing on talent that has the support that they need to be successful. So job coaches, university, university disability offices and so forth, they actually play a front role, yeah, a, a important role in the process for supporting the candidates through the interviews and so forth. But from there, recruiters are also able to see candidates uh, that are pre-vetted and make, making sure that the candidates that they are interviewing are able to be successful in that environment. For example, you wouldn't want to have someone interviewing for a role with, with bright lights on the ceiling if, if they are not able to, to do well in that environment. And then recruiters who are looking at the candidate profiles on the platform have a full understanding of that person's individual neurodivergent. So the recruiters have this general awareness around neurodiversity, but they can also be very tailored to the specific individual. What does it look like for this person? What are their unique and exceptional talents? And also, what do I need to, to, to change or consider to make sure they're supported and they're able to be successful in the interviews and eventually in this job? I really appreciated Connor's willingness to educate me and the listeners of this podcast about the world of neurodiversity. Connor stressed throughout our conversation that many neurodiverse people don't disclose because they fear discrimination. Organizations like Mentra that are doing the work to educate PeopleOps leaders is a great step in the right direction. I wanted to ask Connor what more needs to be done and also why organizations should hire neurodiverse people in the first place. I want to ask a very basic question, and, and apologies if it sounds uh, reductive or, or ignorant. Um, why would a, a company want to hire someone that is neurodivergent? There are moral reasons that they might want to do that. Of course, if uh, they have a DEI team, they, they, there's probably reasons that, that come from that side too. But what are the, the benefits that could come from this? Why would a company want to have a more neurodiverse workplace? Yeah, in short, um, yes, you have some companies that are checking the box. It goes much deeper than that, though, in terms of the, the values. If you, we like to say, if you're coming for the DEI, we're going to give you ROI. Because at the end of the day, this is a population that has extraordinary benefits, um, you know, when compared to the average employee. And also being neuroinclusive in general has extraordinary benefits for everyone in your organization. So specifically for this population, we're looking at individuals that can be 30% more productive than the average employee some studies as high as 140% more productive in, in certain technical roles. Uh, and there are just fundamentally some unique uh, strengths that various forms of neurodivergence can, can bring. We're talking pattern recognition, hyper-focus, creative ability to innovate, so many different um, strengths. And it's, a, it's a diverse population. I can't name all of them right now. But you also have the, the, the retention benefits, which are huge. When you think about this population that has been underemployed, that has been struggling to find workplaces that where they can feel themselves 
And then they find that workplace and they don't have to be anxious anymore about sharing, you know, their own identity and about being themselves and being able to bring their full value to the workforce. They're not going to want to up and leave after two years. They're going to be, if you're able to support that population, we're looking at retention benefits that are turnover. That's one, about one half of, of the standard turnover in the tech sector. And in some areas, it's even less. So that's a huge value proposition for your, your company, especially now when we're, we're hiring less uh, and a lot of hiring slowdowns, that the quality of your hires matters. There's no more loyal and, and productive population that you can find than the neurodiverse population. Then, you know, the company-wide benefits of being neuroinclusive as a whole, um, there's a really sort of a complementary set of benefits there as well. So if you look at today's workforce uh, and today's systems, you have an entire generation of folks silent quitting. You have uh, mental health issues in the workplace that have, you know, made headlines over the last couple of years. We look at labor shortages and all of these sort of challenges in the, in the, the war for talent. And, and meanwhile, we see this population of really, you know, talented individuals that's totally left out. This is an inefficiency and it's, in companies are spending one trillion on, on turnover. The solution to many of these problems is neuroinclusion. If you can think about a standard employee who, no, we're going to go back to Bright Lights example because I'm, I'm just trying to really illustrate the point. Someone on the spectrum who has a extreme sensitivity to the bright lights or to the loud sounds or to the, the smells in this environment, they just might churn out right away and it might be a total make or break uh, thing right from the beginning. But there might be a you know, regular employee, a typical employee, would also over time be less productive because of you know, these factors. Um, they may have sort of anxiety that they take home with them after work or other sort of mental health challenges behind the scenes as a result of being in an environment where they don't feel like they're able to, to be successful. And it might be so subtle that maybe they churn out after a couple of years, maybe they're just you know, there for a while, but they're less productive. Maybe there's all kinds of you know, negative externalities outside of work that happen. And really, if you're addressing the challenges of the neurodivergent population, you're also addressing a lot of the subtle challenges of your existing workforce uh, that, that may or may not be neurodivergent. That's, that's where we believe the, the big value is for companies. Something that I was thinking about while you were talking is, of course, we've been talking about the recruitment of, of new employees. But I'm also kind of thinking about the, the, the hidden neurodiverse challenges that might be in a business already. And you, you actually kind of touched on it there, this idea of there might be this not so acute churn or, or problems that might come and it might be a little bit uh, not as easy to, to perceive. Um, you mentioned yourself that you were diagnosed uh, as an adult and uh, it's by the sounds of it, you were already in the workplace. Um, and you, you mentioned even people that do know that they are neurodivergent, they mask, they don't always um, disclose that they, they are that way. So for the, for the people ops person that's listening to this podcast right now, and they're thinking, okay, well, if one in seven people are neurodiverse, I know, we know the stats in our, our, our company, and there's not 15% of the company that has disclosed as neurodiverse. What would you say to that person, knowing that there are needs that are going unmet in their business? For sure. The, what I would say is there, there are needs going unmet in your business. You absolutely have neurodivergent workers there today, many of whom, probably I would go so far as to say in most cases, the majority of whom have not disclosed through your self-ID campaign or, or have not disclosed perhaps at all to anyone in the company. I'll give an analogy here. We have a lot of neurodivergent job seekers that are coming to us that are very experienced. 
that are already employed. And they're coming to us because they want to find an environment where they can be themselves and they don't have to deal with the anxiety of not knowing whether or not they can share. So they're coming to companies that want to hire them from day one for who they are. They're sometimes even taking a pay cut to do that. If you are one of those companies that they're leaving as this movement starts to take off, then you're missing an opportunity to retain some of your most talented workers. And what I would say to that is that by making a, a public commitment to hire neurodivergence and to become neuroinclusive, you are also making a, a commitment internally to folks that are neurodivergent that haven't shared yet that they have a permission to start to unmask. We've seen this time and again where companies, and it kind of works both ways, Companies that share that they're starting to hire neurodivergence, they start to see a lot of people internally, even sometimes leaders, unmasking and sharing that they're neurodivergent too. That, of course, is a great public commitment to help bring people in. But by bringing people in, you're making the statement to your existing employees that you value this in your workforce, that the HR teams understand the value. And that's really, I think, an important message to show that you're walking the walk. Because up until uh, an employee who's neurodivergent can genuinely feel that you value this, not just from, you know, checking the box or making a statement, but actually from hiring people and actually, you know, walking the walk, they won't know for sure that they'll be afraid that by sharing that they, you know, stand a higher chance of, you know, getting let go or, um, you know, seeing career stagnation as a result of sharing their neurodivergence. So I think that's a, a really important point. And, you know, the, the other side of this is that we've seen a lot of companies where, ERGs have played a major role in, in part of the change here, uh, where things have been very grassroots. Some, some large semiconductor company that I'm thinking of right now, for example, they had a senior leader uh, come out and, as neurodivergent, and that allowed many others to feel comfortable in that particular department to, to start to share their neurodivergence. They kind of came together as an ERG, neurodiversity ERG, to start to show in numbers how important the neurodivergent workforce was in this company. A lot of technology companies and a lot of roles with engineering and finance, you could see a disproportionate number of neurodivergence. So it could be even more than 20% of your workforce, actually, that would identify. And when you look at these large groups of employees coming together and, and demanding the change, the number one thing they're asking for is for companies to, to hire neurodivergence. So actually, my point here is that by hiring, by making the commitment, by actually investing in the, the cultural change and the awareness and the, you know, the, the inclusivity that, that needs to support those hires, you are also doing that for your internal workforce. Fantastic. One thing I wanted to ask about was the effects of remote work when, when it comes to neurodiversity. So what impact, if any, maybe maybe there hasn't been, has remote work had on the, the experience for neurodiverse employees? So as companies have implemented return to the office or hybrid models, does that change how they're working? Also, of course, fully remote companies too. Yeah, it's a really great question. I think remote work is one of the really important drivers during the, the pandemic, uh, alongside the sort of renewed investment in, in inclusion and, and a number of other factors that have really brought neurodiversity to, to the spotlight in a way that it has never has been before. You know, we've seen a lot of mental health challenges during the pandemic as well, and that has definitely become a major investment now that companies are not really pulling back from. They're, they're seeing the value there. And I think one of the long-winded answer here is that remote work is very, very valuable because it allows an individual to be able to provide themselves their own accommodations. And, you know, being in an environment where they're comfortable can oftentimes 
be easier to, to accomplish when you're in your home rather than when you're in an office. Uh, for example, it might be more expensive to, to build a meditation room in your office than it would be to just, you know, have someone have it at their home. But I think fundamentally neurodivergence can work in the office. They can work at home. We just need to have the accommodations and the support uh, that we need to be successful. And a lot of times these sorts of uh, accommodations are, are free and are very cheap to implement. I'll give you an example of one that remote work has actually really helped with is when you are uh, looking at sort of cognitive accessibility and, and different sensory processing styles, sending information in advance of meetings is one accommodation that is really, uh, really important. And for a lot of reasons, that's helpful for everyone. When you're looking at a, a, an in-office environment pre-pandemic, oftentimes that did not happen very much um, because we're in an office, everything's moving around, you know, things are being spoken about at the water cooler and there wasn't, you know, a very solid culture of sending things in advance. For a lot of organizations that then went remote during the pandemic, we started to build up some, some good habits around if everyone's remote, you know, we, we can't just assume that we're going to be bumping into each other. We're going to have to start sending things in advance. That is like one small example of how being remote friendly actually helps. Even if you're then going back to the office, if you keep that good habit, that's helping your neurodivergent employees uh, be successful in the office. So I think really my point here is that remote work helps by building good habits uh, that, that end up being neuroinclusive. And also for the individuals that are working remote, it does help them get the, the accommodations they need, sometimes at a lot lower cost. So that's a fantastic example. And having, as you say, uh, agendas that are sent beforehand or just general documentation information about what the, the meeting is really uh, there to try and achieve, always a very good thing uh, regardless. But that's, that's really, really interesting to hear about it in that particular context. At the same time, uh, trying to be balanced are there any downsides or are there any, any challenges that come up for neurodiverse individuals uh, working in a remote environment? I think it really comes down to the individual. We're working with a population that is incredibly diverse. You know, contrary to popular stereotypes, a lot of neurodivergents are very social and have a lot of empathy. And I think it's an individual uh, choice and preference for statistics point of view. The majority of the hires that we've made in the past couple of years through Mentor, I've actually been in-person hires. That's more of a product, not I think of the, the community's preference. I think a lot of folks generally want, you know, remote work or hybrid hybrid work, um, but companies are companies moving back to the office. And I wanna just reiterate that neurodivergence can work in an office environment and, and we do. I think generally the flexibility and the ability to, to kind of have a, an accommodations process um, that accommodates the individual's unique needs that is very important. And in some individuals we work with who are neurodivergent absolutely need to have a remote environment. Some absolutely need to have the consistency of going into an office and being able to, to look at that from a, a, a lens of neuroinclusion means that you're, you're understanding that there, there needs to be a tailored uh, solution and also that there's some fundamental factors to the organizational culture that need to make sure that everyone's feeling involved and and, and no one is left out, such as, you know, sending information in advance and, and having written instructions and, and generally all of the, the good practice things that we can sometimes get lazy about if we're being honest in an office environment. We should make sure that we are re remote friendly and, and that a lot of those things that 
that kind of naturally had to happen during the pandemic that we keep those those good habits up because even when we're going back to the office, even if we're in an office, those are good habits to have for being neuroinclusive. Absolutely. Of course, this podcast is called New World of Work. And as you say, this is a, a very new area. It's a rapidly advancing and, and maturing area. What are some of your predictions for the future of the workplace when it comes to neurodiversity or neuroinclusivity? For sure. Well, I think um, I'll just share a little bit. I don't think I touched on this earlier that when we were at, at uh, still working on this part time, one of the big catalysts for, for our team to go full time was that Sam Altman, co-founder of, of OpenAI, actually was our, our lead investor in our pre-seed round. He really believed in the power of, of neurodiversity in, in terms of how OpenAI was able to be successful. Many of their engineers are neurodivergent and they're obviously leading the way in terms of the whole AI revolution. Uh, I think as we start to see AI rolling out and really transforming the landscape of opportunities for companies, and you know, of course companies are talking about generative AI now, but also for, for workers, as there's a new skill set that's emerging. We have this rare opportunity to bring, bring neurodivergence that may not have a lot of traditional career experience into to the workforce of the future as we're reskilling everyone anyway. Um, this is a population that has a lot of the raw aptitude and capabilities and you know, brings a lot of fundamental economic benefits to, to companies and to the world. So I think neurodiversity and, and embracing neuroinclusion will be really key. Uh, to differentiate the companies that succeed in this sort of next era of innovation versus those that kind of get left behind. And I want to kind of just reiterate the point that by solving for the most complex use case and, and really embracing neuroinclusion and, and hiring from this talent pool as a company, you are also uh, sending a message to your existing employees that they can be themselves and you're going to activate a lot of latent potential there. And you are also um, taking the steps to build the infrastructure to be an innovative company of tomorrow. And, and we see what, you know, in, a, in an era of such rapid change, if you're not able to, to take those steps, then it's, uh, it's only a matter of time until you, as a company, get left behind. Love it. Thank you very much. Uh, and then final question for me, uh, and this is a question that we ask everyone that comes on the podcast. What's the best mistake you've ever made and why? Best mistake I ever made. I was on the TEDx selection committee and uh, Jilika was uh, our mentor's other founder, uh, of course, CEO as well. She was uh, late to apply to the application. Uh, the day of, there was an issue with her video and she, I think, submitted her application two minutes late. And uh, on that selection committee, I was actually, we were taking a vote of whether to, to consider her, her application to be a TEDx speaker. And I, I said, no, I said, we shouldn't, you know, stickler for the rules. You got to be exactly on time. And I was out, I was outvoted. And of course, we did end up considering her application. She, she got selected as a speaker. And then, of course, it became her coach and the mentor started. I think that seems like an innocent mistake, both on her part and on my part. But I, I want to just reiterate that my biggest mistake there was not understanding that Jillick is also neurodivergent as well. And ADHD oftentimes comes with a form of time blindness. Um, where we we can sometimes, um, as neurodivergent, specifically folks with ADHD, get really in the zone and get really focused and, and lose track of, of time. And I think that sort of uh, mindset of, you know, hey, this person's two minutes late, we'll never forgive them, uh, never give them the chance. So many neurodivergents, uh, of course, are working on these executive functioning 
um, skills, but also as a society, we can't necessarily expect for those individuals to to change and conform. And I think having a little bit of leeway to to accommodate individual differences of that nature is really important because a lot of the, the world's greatest innovators are neurodivergent. And I think Jillica is one of them. And clearly my being outvoted was really important to the to the history of this movement and of Mentra. And um, I learned from that experience that being a stickler for the rules in a society that's not neuroinclusive, it's not all that productive. And it's certainly, you know, not, I mean, maybe you feel good about yourself to, to follow the rules, but, you know, just being a little bit more open, a little bit more accommodating to folks and, and giving them the chance oftentimes uh, will be way more impactful than, than, you know, taking everything by the book and, and, you know, the book itself is, is not fully optimized. So let's just remember that, that, that would be my answer to that question. That is a fantastic answer. Uh, I guess I just wanted to ask just before we finish up, is there, is there anything that you, you think we've missed? Is there anything that you, you wanted to talk about that we weren't able to touch on? I think we covered a lot. Um, the last thing I would say is if, if anyone in the audience is neurodivergent uh, or knows someone who's neurodivergent, Mentra has so many resources that we can connect individuals with, both if they're already in a role and they're looking to find support, everything from job coaching or even a virtual job coach that we've just rolled out to help with uh, navigating um, your career and, and navigating profession, everything from professional emails to career progression. And for folks, of course, who are looking for work, who want to get job coaching, upskilling opportunities. We work with so many boot camps that are training uh, neurodivergence in, in all sorts of different careers. Um, then please, uh, please consider getting in touch. Uh, and my email is Connor, C-O-N-N-E-R at Mentra.com. If you want to send me an email personally, uh, if you listen this far, feel free. And also certainly feel free to sign up on our site. This was such an eye-opening interview for me, and I hope that you felt the same way. Here are some of my key takeaways from this episode. Embrace neurodiverse employees' unique abilities. Corner stresses the ROI of hiring neurodiverse talent. These employees tend to be more focused on their tasks, are subject matter experts, and also have a lower turnover rate. Creating an accommodating workplace is good for everyone. When PeopleOps leaders foster a safe workplace for neurodiverse employees, there is a positive ripple effect. They not only increase the happiness of their own workforce, they attract new talent and create a welcoming work environment for all employees. There is more to be done. With statistics showing that 15 to 20% of the world is neurodiverse, there's a high chance that there are people within our organizations who are not disclosing. Continuing to educate ourselves, having open conversations, and walking the walk can help foster a more inclusive environment for all. Thank you for listening to New World of Work, the podcast exploring the new frontier of the modern workforce through an international lens. We hope this episode served to expand your horizons and open your mind to a new perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate and review the podcast so that we can reach more listeners. I'm your host, Reese Black. See you next time.